0: Hey, deserving listeners. Today I'm going to answer patron emails. This first email is from an anonymous patron, and she writes Seven years ago, I became a mother to my amazing daughter, and of course, it changed my life. I fell in love with her instantly, and for the first time in my life, I felt an unconditional love I had never felt before. I desperately wanted to give her what I never had, which was a happy childhood. Thanks to Facebook parenting groups, I became aware of attachment parenting and I became really interested in developmental psychology. I read everything I could get my hands on. I thought that if I just educated myself enough, I could become the perfect parent. However, it is not that easy, of course. As my daughter has become older, it has become increasingly difficult for me to give her what I never had. I feel like I am failing on a daily basis. I know what I'm supposed to do. Um, My husband and I are on the same page, fortunately. We don't use punishment or shaming. We do listen to her. My problem is that I am just not always able to be the parent I want to be when I'm under stress, and it doesn't take much to push me over the edge and and make me snap. I want to be that warm, stable presence for my daughter, but it simply doesn't come naturally to me. I am struggling to explain this. To make a long story short, I grew up with a lot of neglect and alcoholism. My parents separated when I was three and used me a lot against each other. My home life was very unstable. Today, I don't have a close relationship with either of my parents. I want to break that cycle, but it's so hard. It's like I have an empty space inside where I was supposed to have that resource to pass on to my daughter." I get so easily triggered and what comes out of my mouth are things like, not right now, or you're getting in my way, or please stop whining, instead of the warm, loving words I want to say to her. Not every time, but often. As a strong introvert, it is is so exhausting for me to have a small person talking to me and needing my attention most of the time. We home educate her and I work from home, so I don't get many breaks from her. Is there any advice you can give me on how to cope in stressful situations to avoid snapping? End of email. So first off, I'm hearing a lot of strengths. You and your husband are working well together. Many parents can't say that. You also care deeply about her and about doing a good job uh, as a parent. That's that's wonderful. You also are taking responsibility for your issues. You're not blaming anybody else for that. That's a really big deal. A lot of people can't do that. You're very, you're very self-aware in this way. And that's going to that's gonna carry the day usually. So having said that, a lot of what you're talking about is normal. And I know you've heard that. And I will get to some advice later. But I just want to say that up front is that all parents struggle with things like this. But particularly today, because there's just massive expectations on parents today. It's never been this way, particularly in the Western world, particularly in places like Seattle, the West Coast, this kind of thing. And particularly for mothers. I mean, it is insane the amount of expectations there are on mothers and how much uh, the belief system is like, well, if you do the right thing, you read all the right blogs, you follow all the right things you're going to raise the perfect child. And, you know, believe me, other parents close to you, in fact, are struggling as well. They're just afraid to admit it. Believe me on that. <laughs> um, no one it, one of the biggest shaming, one of the biggest shameful things you can do in our society is have some deficiency as a parent, particularly in the way you're talking about it, which is like, sometimes my kid just gets on my fucking nerves and I want my own space. It's, That is a universal feeling, by the way. No parent who actually is parenting. I mean, certainly if you're a a Disneyland dad or something, you don't have that feeling. But if you're actually, you know, uh, ground level parenting a child, there are frequent moments where you're going to be like, God, like, get me out of here. I just want a glass of wine and hang out with my friends. Will someone please take this child away from me? That's just normal. Kids have a lot of needs and they don't really care about your feelings. That's an important thing to remember is that developmentally, kids are not supposed to really care about your feelings. Now, some kids do have empathy and they do exhibit that care, but it's it's not necessarily universal for sure. And even if they do have some empathy, uh, they just, you know, they're immature. They're they're selfish and and they want what they want. They don't really care about your feelings. And so it's, it's going to take a toll, particularly if you have a history where people didn't care about your feelings. So all this is to say, you know, so a lot of what you're talking about is normal. um, And I encourage you to embrace the messiness of parenting. I often will say this, I've even written it on baby shower cards. The goal of parenting that the the you know the the pinnacle of success as a parent is doing the least amount of damage as possible to your child, and the least amount of necessary therapy will be um, you know necessary to recover from your parenting mistakes. You're you're trying to go for you know maybe five years of therapy to recover from your parenting mistakes, rather than twenty five years of therapy to recover from your parenting mistakes. And I am not joking when I say that, you know, be like, oh, it's so funny. No, I, I'm dead. Se- I mean, it is f- sort of funny, but it is I'm dead serious. There is no way anyone can parent a child in a way that won't require therapy to recover. So and I know that it's like, well, of course, a therapist is going to say that. Uh, yeah, you know, maybe that is the thing. But I, I, in my experience, I do not think that is a biased opinion. So it's very normal to go through this. Um, yeah, you're seeing, maybe you already have screwed up your kid in some ways. Maybe you're even seeing some acting out in your child because you've screwed up your kid in some ways. But, you know, overall, if you're loving your kid and, and you have a stable life and, um, you know, all the uh, main needs are being met in the child, occasionally the child is, is, is having their feelings hurt. Um, you're doing a, a, maybe the best job on the planet, honestly. <laughs> so uh so just consider that also some kids are more difficult than others so when you see other families around you because i hear in your email you're comparing yourself to other families and you might be looking at other kids and you're like wow you know those other kids seem to be getting along really well it might just be because those children were easy believe me i've seen many wonderful parents who had very difficult children And it did not seem as though the parents had anything to do with that difficulty. The kid is just, you know, some kids are just more needy or more difficult or more whiny or that kind of thing. Um, So it's possible. Of course, I have no way of knowing that with your family, but, you know, it's just another thing to think about. Also, you know, this is kind of a small thing before I get into my more uh, clinical advice is you mentioned that you're homeschooling and you're also working from home. That's going to put a lot of strain on you as a as a human being and as a parent. You know, it's not inherently a problem to work from home and to homeschool your kid. But given your issues, I would revisit that plan with your husband it, the The way to evaluate that is in your mind, imagine getting a break from your daughter Monday through Friday during the day. How does that feel to you does that f- you know and and free yourself from the shame of quote unquote abandoning your child, which it is not but you know just think like would that lessen the load a little bit? Would that give you more energy to um not uh, shoo your child away. Would would that um, you know give you more capacity to withstand uh, those whiny moments in your child? It's possible that you're acting out and pushing your child away in a in a hostile manner because you resent her for dominating your life. You grew up with a lot of abuse and neglect. And it's possible that um, you haven't been given enough space in your life to really be who you wanted to be and live the life you want to live. And now you have this other dominating uh, presence in your life, similar to the way that your parents dominated you and ignored you. But the fact is, is your parents uh, should have paid attention to you. It's normal for your seven-year-old child to to ignore you and to not care about your feelings. So you might be having some transference with your child uh, in relation to, to your own parents and, and you're acting that out. So part of that might be not only just practically eking out some uh, independence and, and, and space for you, but it might also be emotionally as well, uh, meaning that maybe there's other ways you can get some sort of power and agency in your life so that you don't feel like you're always underneath someone's thumb um, so it's also possible that you're subconsciously recreating a dynamic you had with your parents by creating a situation in which um, any parent would get tired of day in and day out so the way to think about this is that um, you grew up with neglect alcoholic parents what had you say you said uh Um, I grew up with a lot of neglect and alcoholism. So it's possible that um, in your effort to overcompensate or to compensate for that, you have inadvertently created something that looks very different from when you grew up, but actually in essence is the same. So uh, again, I'm shooting in the dark because I would have to assess you. I have no idea. So I'm just throwing a lot of stuff at the wall. Maybe none of these things will resonate with you or maybe a couple of them will. But it's possible that, uh, and we do this, we all recreate our past relationships, including those with our parents. And so mainly those with our parents, but so you uh, experienced that neglect and your parents were drinking all the time, they were irresponsible, they, they weren't attuned to you, they didn't pay attention to you. So you grew up and you do the opposite. So you pay a ton of attention to your child, you don't drink at the bar, you don't escape, you, you spend a lot of time with your kid, you're very dedicated to that. But if you overcompensate by creating an unmeshed relationship with your child, then you and your child will feel neglected because neither one of you is given the space to individuate and be your own person outside of your dyad. And so it's possible that um, you've inadvertently recreated a very similar situation between you and your daughter that you experienced growing up, even though it looks the opposite. Again, shooting in the dark, but if that's true, awareness will help you to redirect that. Obviously, healing from the past and therapy can help with that as well. So having said all that, that leads me to my advice section here. And my number one is just what I just said is, you know, continue healing from your past. You were neglected growing up. You deserve to heal from that. You're probably still hurting and the pain might make it tough to find the energy that you're looking for in terms of having capacity to really withstand the annoyances of being a parent, of which there are many. So this is long-term therapy. This is secure relationships. This is family of origin work. Listen to my episode on family of origin therapy for that. Number two is reduce enmeshment. So it's hard for me to know, but it sounds like you have some yellow flags for possible enmeshment with your child. Um, listen to my episodes on enmeshment for that. Basically, in a nutshell, enmeshment is a um, you know an inflexible too permeable boundary between two people as a defense against the anxiety that you feel. It's possible, again, just shooting in the dark, that because of the neglect you went through growing up, you have a lot of anxiety about distance, and you have a lot of anxiety about any sign of difference and distance because that that was a sign of things when you were a kid to have rejection and neglect, and so you overcompensate by that by trying to create a lot of similarity and a lot of overlapping egos between you and your daughter Um, and any sign of distance between you and your daughter is very anxiety provoking to you i don't know if that's the case you you haven't said anything in that way but it wouldn't be unusual for you to to uh, have that situation given what you've talked about and given um, your history so if you're enmeshed and she whines then it becomes unbearable to parents uh, because you have no ability to pull away emotionally from that person or even physically. Whereas if you had some adaptive boundaries where you could, uh, be very close sometimes, and and also distant when you need to be, and then she whines. Then you quickly adapt by distancing yourself emotionally, and then providing a firm but loving boundary. In order to be a parent, it's very important that we have that adaptive flexibility where we can love and you know hold and feed, and you know you're reading a book to them at night, and you know that you're cuddling and. You're, you're you're one person, you know, you, you just get each other. And then when the child is having a meltdown or being a pill, you have the ability as a parent to be like, okay, I'm now a parent and that's the kid and I need to pull away emotionally and I need to think about my strategy here and enact it. Uh, if you don't have that ability to pull away, you're going to get lost in it and you're going to Uh, be very affected emotionally by the whining and by the you know the pleads for attention when when it's not appreciated and you're also going to have a hard time saying no uh, in a way that doesn't stress out the kid. Um, Any no to a child will stress them out but the best no's are no's from parents that are differentiated and are calm. Um, If you're if you're stressed out either by shame or guilt or some other thing, then that amps up your anxiety and the child will feel that and it, it will complicate things for them, which makes them maybe more dependent and more whiny. So whenever I hear a family, a parent complain to me about a kid who is whining a lot or a parent who is having trouble with the whining, uh, the first place I, I look, it's not always a situation, but the first place I look is, well, how, you know, why is the whining working? You know, kids, kid, all kids will experiment with whining. Every parent has experienced that. It's like, yeah, you know, our kid went through this whining phase for about six months. You know, they see it on TV or they see other kids doing it, or they're born with the, it. Who knows where it comes from, but it just seems to crop up at some time at some point in the same way that you know kids they'll go through a phase of like it's mine that's you know that's my thing and don't touch it you know it's just there's just this normal human kind of phase the the key is is that as parents we have to react in a way where we understand them why we understand why they're whining we attune to that feeling like we're like well you know i hear you you know you really want this to happen but you don't reward it. And uh, so you stay close. You don't reject them. Uh, You don't walk away. You don't hurt them. You're with them. You know, you're loving. You're you're right there. But it's not going to work because whining is something that is not functional. (laughs) Every parent agrees. That is not the way you ask for things. And I, you know, you ask like a big person or recognize that the world doesn't revolve around you all the time. Uh, so you have you stay close, but you also draw from boundary. If you do that for a prolonged period of time, uh, the whining tends to go away. Not always, because every kid is kind of stubborn on certain areas, but usually it goes away. Now the problem is when I would uh, work with families of of your sort. The enmeshment might have been present since the day she was born. Now the enmeshment is is okay from say zero to two or something. And by the way, attachment parenting, if you uh, interpret it in a sort of way, it can lead towards enmeshment. Attachment parenting, um, there's a lot of contact between parent and child, which is good. I, I'm a hundred per hundred ten percent behind the. Premises and and the the main tenets of attachment parenting. I did a whole episode on attachment parenting years ago. You can go to our website and listen to that one. But uh, but if you have a tendency towards enmeshment and you're doing attachment parenting, then you might confuse attachment parenting, good parenting, with enmeshment parenting. Again, I don't hear any signs of that, but it, you know it's possible that that's what's happening. The problem is when um, I see. Uh, families like yours, where the kid is seven, well, it's possible that for five years you've had dysfunctional enmeshment with the child. Again, it's not the end of the world every parent has fucked up their kid to some extent by the time the kid is seven so this might be your thing <laughs> it's it, it's there's nothing unusual about that it's like a you know it's like getting a cavity at the age of 27 it's just like you know it's just one of those things it just happens we don't want to crumble up into a ball of 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 uh, fetus position crying just because we did something that everyone does so you know this might be your thing The problem is, is five years of enmeshment is really hard to change in a system. And I have found that to be true. I have treated many families where there's enmeshment and, um, you know, it might take a little bit of time to recognize the enmeshment, which is might seem like, okay, we're halfway done. We we're aware of the enmeshment. Now, you know, let's spend another few weeks and let's eliminate it now that we can see it. It is way harder to actually eliminate it. Uh, because of the way the system has solidified to some extent. Also, the child will often try to pull you back into enmeshment because that's all that they ever have known since they were born. And when you start to draw boundaries, it freaks them out. And so, and then you're freaked out because their reactivity can sometimes make you feel very shameful and very worried about um, your relationship status and that kind of thing, and you go right back to enmeshment. Plus, enmeshment, like any defense, will have a a lot of distortions and um, denial around that that sort of frames the situation as like, okay, we're not enmeshed in this situation, even though you kind of are. Anyway, I have no idea if you're enmeshed, but if any of this is resonating with you... (laughs) Uh, maybe it, it applies. Number three is find other things to do. And again, this has to do with, with enmeshment. I'm not hearing, you know, maybe you have a fantastic life outside of parenting. I don't know. I'm just kind of shooting in the dark. But it's possible that you're too focused on her, not only in an in enmeshed a, in sense, but it's possible that she has been elected by the system by your family system to push you out the door Um, it's a it's a weird way of looking at it but i found it to be very um, conceptually sound is that it's possible that you and your husband and her have decided that you do not have a, a life enough and that the daughter is the perfect person to push you in a subconscious way to to not be in mesh with her anymore and to have a life outside of uh, outside of the home life you know because i'm hearing you're home all the time you're you're doing uh, homeschooling um and maybe the system has identified that as a problem for you and that you're not getting your needs met so maybe if you had other other people to focus on um friends hobbies you know things outside of the house or or even if they're inside the house that they're just not they're, they're very much not oriented towards your family, you know, maybe, maybe that'll help again, total shooting in the dark. Um, Things aren't usually that easy, but maybe that's one of the small factors. Number four, you know, you're asking, how do you cope? Well, you know, all the normal things we do to cope. Uh, Deep breaths is a very useful thing. Just taking a beat. Your, Your kid is whining. Your kid's poking you like, Hey, you know, take a, take a breath, relax your body remind yourself everything's okay, it's not an emergency, and then react. Um, Slowing down is a wonderful thing that all parents can benefit from. And the kids benefit because, you know, you're snapping less, right? The other thing is to withstand disapproval. I'm not hearing this for sure uh, in what you're saying, but uh, most parents have problems with this anyway, so it's probably true. If you're on the enmeshed side, then you have a bigger problem. But all parents have a hard time uh, disappointing their kids, right? The kids will be like, "Oh, you know," and you're disappointing them. Uh, it, it's it's heartbreaking, and so uh, maybe one of the things you need to do is to withstand, get get accustomed to disappointing your own child, and allow you know it might even kind of trigger some trauma in you around like. I'm doing what I did to the way my parents did it to me because my parents disappointed me so much. But it's quite possible that you're disappointing your child in a functional way, whereas your parents disappointed you in almost a universally dysfunctional way. And they're not the same thing. Again, I'm really shooting in the dark here because I didn't have a lot of data. Um, Also, and this is a big one, have a plan for how to respond to your child's behavior. By the time your kid is seven and you're complaining about this, you could probably predict every beat of annoyance you're going to experience with your kid um, over the next week. If I asked you, okay, what do you think is going to trigger you over the next week? In all likelihood, you'll have, you know, 10, 20 things on that list. All of them are in almost, you know, you're almost assured that they're going to happen within the next week, if not repeatedly through the week. Okay. So you look at those behaviors and you say, okay, what is the response that I want to do here? And once you make that plan, then you try to enact that plan. Whereas if you're trying to react in the moment, then you might habitually do things that you regret later. So for example, your kid sometimes whines. Okay, well, what's the plan? Um What is a functional plan? Now, you might not know what a functional reaction is to that because you weren't modeled that growing up and your husband might not have been either. So you might be kind of shooting in the dark yourself of just like, well, what is a functional way to respond to that? I don't know. If you have a plan, when you get stressed out, you'll have a better chance of enacting that plan. One of the ways to think about it is in the military. When you're in the military and you're in a gunfight, or you're a police officer and you're in a gunfight you are stressed out there's no way around the stress well how do soldiers and police officers and firefighters how do they get through that stress well they've practiced it before going into that stressful moment over and over and over again they visualize it in their head to the point where the behavior becomes automatic and they don't have to think in the moment so if you're trying to think in the moment of stress, you've already lost because no one can really function under those conditions. So you have to make a plan. Now, what plan do you make? Uh, well, that's a larger question that I can't really answer here. I might have alluded to a little bit of it right in, in this episode so far. But, um, but I would you know talk with a family therapist about or a parenting specialist about that. The other thing is, is having a safe space to retreat to. I don't know if you have this, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but it kind of sounds like, again, there's a lot of, there's potential for enmeshment. And if you don't have a safe space where like the bathroom or your bedroom or your office or something, you know, we all, especially introverts, you need a space where you can go to where you're just mostly guaranteed that no one's going to bug you. And that will recharge your battery and then you can emerge and you can feel better. Now, the key is, is you don't want to disappear in there for 12 hours at a time, similar to the way your parents disappeared while they were drinking. Um, So you have to kind of watch for that, but you deserve to have a safe space. Every parent should. And a lot of parents, particularly mothers, because they're self-sacrificial, will kind of allow their children and maybe even their husband to just kind of invade their personal space, including their own body sometimes. Um, So, and you know, and that's another factor that I should throw in here is that, and I don't know, you didn't indicate this, but I've seen this as well is that a lot of mothers who have a lot of shame about their parenting will allow their kids to not only invade them emotionally, but also physically. Uh, I don't know if that's happening with, with your kid, but um, when I would observe this, I would be like, Whoa, you know, that, that mother has, has no space of her own, including her own body, meaning that the kid just uh, ha, has carte blanche to just sort of invade the space, the physical space of the, of the mother. Now, there are plenty of times when you want to hold your child and cuddle with the child and play with your child. But there are other times when you, you know, you need your fucking space. And um, how do you manage that? How do you signal to your child that, you know, now is not the time, maybe later? Um, And how does a child learn that they can't just invade your space? I don't know if that's the case for you, but um, uh, it's possible that that's an issue. Also, another way to cope is to plan how to entertain her. I see a lot of parents, and I have no signs of this from you, but I've seen a lot of parents where they get frustrated with their kid, but when we sort of and the kid is doing something actually annoying but if we look at the previous you know 15 minutes or hour building up to that annoying moment where the kid is acting out we see that the kid is trying to entertain themselves kids have a lot of energy and they they like to do things and um, as you well know because your child is bothering you all the time to play with her um, that's normal uh, it's up to us to figure out a way so that the child can play on their own um, some of the time, at least. And in the past, in the old days, the kids would just wander out of the house and just figure out something to do by like picking... Like when I was a kid, I would get ants and I would get you know, the red ants and the, and the black ants and I would make them fight in a jar and I'd make a little terrarium and it would smell funny. Uh, or I would um, climb trees or I'd play with my friends. And why did I do that? Well, because when I went home and I, I remember saying this to my parents, I remember saying like, I'm bored. And my parents would be like, uh, if you're bored, figure out something to entertain yourself. Because right now, mommy is doing something. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I guess I got to figure it out. Now, there's probably moments where I was disappointed and bummed out that like no one could entertain me. Um, So that's one thing to think about is like if the enmeshment is affecting that. But the other thing is, it's like, um, particularly in today's world, a lot of parents aren't really comfortable with their kids just disappearing into the neighborhood is to have activities that your kid will do on their own you know, coloring, watching TV, playing with the iPad. You you know, I don't know how you feel about that. Uh, You can certainly uh, have that. Uh, Seven-year-old isn't, it's not terribly inappropriate for a kid to, uh, well, I'll say uh, plenty of seven-year-olds develop fine with a little bit of screen time. Um, Other kids, Uh, you know, I'm not hearing uh, other kids in your story. Maybe there are other kids, but, you know, Finding, getting other parents, going to the park with other kids and other parents that will give your child other people to focus on, kind of mixes things up a little bit. You have some relief because now you're hanging out with other parents. Again, maybe you're doing all these things, but I'm just kind of throwing stuff out there. Also, and this might be the most important thing, is attunement to your child. Uh, When you're stressed out, it doesn't take much energy to just verbally observe what your child is going through. So your child is bored and annoying you and whining. And instead of like reacting to the stress of just like, oh, get away from me. You know, mommy's working right now, is take like five seconds just to attune to the child's state. So you you just be like, okay, I hear that you really want me to play with you right now and that you're, you're frustrated with the fact that um, I'm busy. Is that what I'm hearing? Now, you know, your child might have various different responses to that, but it usually uh, calms things down for a number of reasons. One is when the child feels like they're heard and understood, they tend to calm down. But the other thing is, is that when you kind of put it out in the air, it, it, it helps you because you verbalize the situation in a way that uh, sort of dictates a more functional response from you. Whereas if you don't identify, if you don't verbalize like, okay, what's happening right now? You might just kind of react knee jerk, which is to say, get away from me, um, that kind of thing. Number five is, uh, and this is the last thing, is it's possible that this is just a phase for your system. And as long as you stay the course that you're on, it's possible that the problem will just go away. I've seen that before. And there's some evidence that that might be true. One, because there's nothing you're saying that is unusual. I mean, a whiny seven-year-old, I mean, that's, that's pretty normal. The other thing is it, that I'll say actually that I'm reminded of is there are different phases of response to children based on their developmental phase. Let, let me uh, go into detail on that a little bit. When a child is three months old, six months old, it's almost universal Not entirely. There are plenty of people who don't dig three-month-old kids. I would usually think they don't have experience with three-month-old or they're scared of three-month-old. But um, once you're not afraid of a three-month-old child or a six-month-old child or you have some experience, it's almost universal that uh, adults and and even just like older people, like seven-year-old people, 10-year-old people, it's almost universal that those children are mesmerizing. <laughs> a three-year old, a six month old, a nine month old, uh, even going into like 18 months, these kids are mesmerizing. In my family, when there would be a, a toddler in the, in the family, we would sit in the living room with all my, you know my, my parents and my brothers and sisters and cousins. And, you know, the, the 12-month-old will just be sitting in the middle of the room, playing with a fan, and the 12 of us are just staring at the child, like, laughing at everything it's doing. Uh, there's just something mesmerizing about them. And like you don't have any ambivalence about dedicating all of your time to that child. I'm quite sure it's evolutionarily based. It makes sense when the kid needs the most uh, assistance. We are the most instinctually fascinated and focused and desirous of that, ch- of that child to pay attention to us in a lot of ways. You know, we're always trying to get uh, their attention. Like, you know, look at me in the eye. I'm doing googly eyes at you. And there's just a ton of motivation there. Okay. Okay. At, by the time the kid starts to enter, like, four or five years old, this is when almost, again, universally, older people, parents, you know, older siblings, older uncles, cousins, there's a it, the, the child's cuteness kind of takes a turn uh, for the worse. Again, I think it's evolutionarily based because there's a certain point when kids have to individuate. They have to start figuring out things for themselves. And they can't um, be totally dependent on other people. And so there's this instinct from older people to be like, okay, that's enough playing. Um, and so uh, so your kid is well in that phase where y- you uh, might, again, I don't know if this is a factor because it's complicated, but it's possible that what you're experiencing is a normal phase of what it's like to be with a child, which is, and you're looking back and you're like, well, you know, when the, when my daughter was younger, I had all this energy and there was, there wasn't any of this complication. And now I feel like I'm always pushing her away. It's possible that what you're experiencing is a totally normal phase of Development in between, between uh, parents and children where you're actually instinctually recognizing that the kid needs to figure stuff out on their own. Now, there's a dysfunctional way of doing that, which is to be hurtful and, and rejecting of a child. And there's a way of doing it that's much more gentle and caring and attuned. Um, but that's another possibility. Anyway, it's possible that everything I said uh, is wrong and doesn't apply to you. Uh, but let me know. Uh, let me know, anonymous patron, if any of this makes sense. Okay, let's take a break and when we get back, let's read another email. <laughs>
1: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All
0: right. We're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast, do so now. Become a patron by going to patreon.com. That's how we know you like what we're doing. And everyone who becomes a patron, that means that I can dedicate time to this project of the podcast because... Um, When I'm doing the podcast, I'm taking time away from my practice. Um, I I have to have a very small practice in relation to the podcast now. And so, uh, essentially, I get to pay my bills when you become a patron, uh, because it takes a lot of time to to do this, this podcast. Also... Uh, If you haven't liked our Facebook page, that's mainly where we communicate with all the listeners, all of our Tuesday Tougher Bluffs, our Thursday polls. Whenever I'm prepping for an episode, um, I might go on Facebook and say, hey, what are your thoughts on X, Y, or Z? You know, gives me a lot of information. There's also the Facebook fan page that I don't go to, but a, a lot of the listeners will. And um, Umberto goes there sometimes. Colin will go there sometimes. Um, Emily, other people you might know from the podcast. And um, there's a lot of lively conversations over there too. Also, if you haven't looked uh, uh, us up on YouTube, we're on YouTube, and uh, sometimes I'll have uh, videos there that are just for YouTube. Uh, usually not, but sort of thing. Also, if you're looking for an older episode, go to the website, uh, psychologyinseattle.com. That's where you can find all the old. All our episodes are on our website. Uh, we have over a thousand episodes and on your phone in particular, you probably only have access to like two or 300. And so we've had a lot of episodes. Now, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to rerun some of the good ones. And so every Sunday you'll hear, um, uh, you know, a rerun that'll come up. And so sometimes eventually it'll come back up if, if it's worth going back to. Um, so sometimes you don't always have to go to the website, but if you're interested in looking up a particular topic, there's a page with all... The topics, you know, and you can look it up. Anyway, another email here, anonymous patron. She writes, How do I continue being an effective and fully compassionate therapist while processing my own trauma? Someone I love very much died recently and in a traumatic way. I was involved in in the decision to take her off of life support, and I was there while she passed. I took my allotted few days of time off, but obviously I'm still processing and some days are very hard for me. I have intrusive memories of how she looked while she was dying, and I feel an intense guilt for consenting to have her taken off of life support. How do I balance processing this trauma while helping my clients with my own trauma, with their own trauma, sorry. I have a toddler at home. I have a 2-hour commute per day and I work in a rural community with with very few resources, so it feels a bit desolate out here. End of email. Well, first off, anonymous patron, I'm sorry you went through that. That is rough. I've never been through something like that myself, but I have been through it kind of, you know, with my animals with my pets having to um you know consent to essentially take them off of life support or even to have them killed by a vet you know put down and put to sleep as they say euthanized as they say but you know it's it's killing the the life that i love and man i mean that is just a rough and potentially traumatic event i i Uh, With uh, a cat that I had uh, 12 years ago-ish I was traumatized And still have flashbacks To uh, putting that cat down Because I was right there when uh, Well, actually, I couldn't stand Being right there But I was nearby when The vet administered the You know, drug that kills The animal Um, The vet actually came to the house And had a whole kit And did did it right there and it was rough. And the next time I had to put a cat down, I chose not to be in the room. And I know some people are, are saying, well, you know, it's kind of cruel. You want to be there? Yeah, uh, certainly if, if you think you can take it. And a lot of people can. But me and my disposition, um, it, that thing is going to burn like, you know, some kind of terrible damage into my brain and so although it's painful anyway right at the same time i don't want to damage myself in the process um so you know to to be there like you were when you're uh you're someone you loved very much and you're there watching the person die i mean that is rough and i just want to say to people like understand that um there are various ways to do stuff like that. You don't necessarily have to be there. I, it's, we're kind of heading as a culture into that direction, like, um, and I enjoy it to some extent. It, it, the option is is great, you know. I think, it, but at the same time, I feel like people should feel some wariness about that because it can take a toll. I mean, it's it's enough to have someone die, right? I mean, that's just terrible. It's a it's another thing to like watch them die. And again, if you can take it, and many people can, and, it, and it's, you know, uh, something you want to honor that sh- the person with, that's something you want to be there for, for your own love of that person. But at the same time, like this anonymous patron is saying, it's like, it you know, it gets into your skin. Um, so, yeah, I'm really sorry you went through that. You know, that's an incredibly traumatic event that will likely be with you forever, uh, not necessarily in a bad way, but probably with you forever, nonetheless. So, you know, I'm, I'm really sad that you went through that. It just sounds really awful. And you say that, you know, you took a few days off. That is not enough time to recover. Now, maybe you have to go back to work and, you know, that's a thing. But to expect that you're going to be at 100% like you were before this event is just unrealistic. Uh, we call this vicarious trauma or we call it a trauma reaction, where you're you get burnt out, is what we call it. And a, a prime sign of being burnt out is the inability to have compassion for other people and an inability to kind of withstand other people's traumas because we're just sort of at capacity with ourselves. So it's it's normal. One of the things. Um, uh, so here's some advice that I because I've been with through a lot of supervisees along these lines. Number one is keep talking about it. You know, when you feel the urge, uh, keep talking about it as you did when you emailed me. Um, That's a wonderful impulse to have your grieving. uh, Often when you you feel the urge to talk about it, when you feel the urge to have the emotions, um, have a place to be able to do that because um, you're going to have a lot of feelings over the years. And if you stifle that or if you feel shamed about it or your life is too rigid or something, then that will create some complications. Um, You don't have to emote all the time, obviously. Um, The way that people grieve naturally is to vacillate between a place of feeling the feelings and uh, rebuilding is what they call it, meaning you're not really thinking about it. So have a flexible way of responding to your body in terms of um, how that is and, and get support. Number two is Lower your expectations. Our society tends to underestimate the recovery time for events like this by like 100 times. You know, people think like, oh, you know, you know, three days, you should be over it. Or, I don't know, you know maybe, maybe a couple weeks. Uh, it's not uncommon for someone to go through what you went through to be seriously affected for years, at least months. So, you know, lower your expectations. You might be kind of a wreck for a while. That's just human. You know, it's normal. Um, number three find rituals or ways to honor you and her this is important um, you know if you believe in an afterlife can you talk to her how, how, what are you gonna say to her if do you have a, a shrine to her do you have a, a trinket of hers um, I don't know if it was a female that died oh yeah you said that she passed um, You know, do you have a prayer for her? Do you have, you know, do you get together with other people and talk about her? You know, have a way of formally grieving. That's important uh, for a lot of people. Number four is go to therapy, obviously. Um, You very well could have PTSD from this event. Um, No joke. You could have actual trauma diagnosable DSM reactivity to the event of watching someone die. And you need to get treatment like anyone else would. Number five is recognize that trauma sometimes causes us to shut down our empathy and compassion as a normal protective measure. And it takes time to recover and sometimes months, which is normal, which I was saying earlier. Okay, well, let me know how you're doing, Anonymous Patron, because I'm worried about you. All right, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from Rachel from Louisiana. She writes, And by the way, whenever I use people's names, it's because they said they wanted me to use that name. So Rachel from Louisiana, she writes, I wanted to ask you about a student-teacher relationship and how those boundaries can get fuzzy. Student-teacher relationship fuzzy boundaries. I've always been someone who gets very attached to my professors and tend to get to know them on very personal levels, especially my male professors. I I can recall this happening for me as early as the sixth grade with my religion teacher, who was probably around 25 years old. He was a really cool teacher. He played the guitar, was a good singer, and made class fun. I used to always go to his room in the mornings and write on his whiteboard and do miscellaneous stuff around his room. Nothing bad ever happened, no boundaries were ever crossed, but he always was a great guy to talk to whenever I was having issues with friends bullying me at school about my weight, intelligence, etc. This happened again when I was in high school with another younger teacher who was 27 when I was 16. When I was a junior in high school, the theater teacher approached me in the hallway and asked if I was the quote-unquote chick who played the violin. We we talked briefly and he encouraged me to audition for theater. I did audition, and it turned out to be the saving grace since I was struggling with drinking large amounts of alcohol, engaging in sexual behaviors with miscellaneous boys, and having issues at home. He and I would sit in as often, often to talk about academics and personal stuff. For example, when I was raped my senior year, he was the first and only person I told for a while. Going along with my wishes, he did not report it, but checked in on on me when he could tell I was having a bad day. Along with that, I was 100% attracted to him and did anything I could to get his attention. We saw each other a lot outside of school, even when I was still in high school and still talk occasionally, even though he is married. The most recent experience is currently happening. Um, I was working on my thesis for my undergrad psychology program. My thesis advisor was another attractive male professor. Not only was he intelligent, but he also is an easy guy to talk to. We would sometimes walk around the quad and talk about miscellaneous stuff. I felt similar obsessions than I did with my prior two examples and tried to find him on social media and researched what the rules were about student-teacher relationships." While I knew I was super attracted to him, and all my friends and classmates knew it, I wasn't even going to attempt to break that boundary for the sake of our careers. I eventually moved on and am in a committed relationship with a man I love very much. Everything was fine until this week. He came into my second job one day, and we did a brief life update. He was super easy to talk to, and like I remembered, uh, and a very, and very he was very attractive as ever. He has come in twice since then, added me on social media, and began messaging me. I didn't think much of it, but he began messaging me frequently and in weird hours of the night. While nothing is sexual in nature, I felt like it may be getting flirty, so I ghosted him for the sake of my current relationship. Here are my questions. Why do I continue ending up in situations like these with my male professors? Am I perceiving these situations in a way that makes me feel closer to them than I actually am? Why would I latch on to male professors and not female professors? What, what is a clear boundary to maintain for student-teacher relationships, especially when you have, uh, have to have a, lots of one-on-one interactions with them? What should I do about the former professor who is currently messaging me? Do I tell my significant other? So I got this email and I felt like I needed more information. So I, I asked about her. So in end of email and uh, what I wanted to know was about her childhood. Cause that could tell us something about um, her situation. So she clarified my mom and dad were always around when I was growing up, both of my parents worked and alternated between who served as the primary caregiver. My mom and I uh, often argue because we are both very defensive my dad and I do not argue much. And he typically affirms me after my mom and I have an argument. My mom is certainly the rule setter and my dad was the fun parent. Um, so then I wrote to her that it was hard to know why she had the pattern without, you know, her being a client and me doing a full assessment. So I decided to throw out some possible conceptualizations. Number one. You were asked to be the companion for your father instead of being a daughter to her, and you are replaying that relationship with these older males. Number two, you were traumatized by men of your age and you avoid them and then channel your energy towards authority figures, which feel much more safer to you given the fact that you've had positive relationships with your father and these teachers. Number three, It's just a coincidence that these events happened and it has nothing to do with your personality and nothing about it is really notable. And then she wrote back and she said, number two makes sense now that you have brought it up. Again, number two was you were traumatized by men of your age and you avoid them and then you channel your energy towards authority figures because they feel safe to you. So, number two definitely makes sense now that you have brought it up. I can actually pinpoint traumatic events that preceded each of these relationships with older men. The middle school teacher was a source of comfort after some bullying I experienced from a boy I had a crush on. The high school teacher became present after a breakup and remained constant after I was raped by a friend. The thesis advisor served as a source of comfort shortly after another sexual assault experience with a dating app experience gone wrong. These men were all comfortable when I was in a place of discomfort and vulnerability. I just never thought of it that way. Of course, I know it's not a substitute for therapy, but it's nice to talk to someone who doesn't know me or the men I was talking about at all. End of email. So... um. So, you know, I threw out some possibilities and she's like, huh, you know, it sounds, you know, it is interesting that each of these relationships with teachers um, was preceded by a very, very negative event with uh, a male my own age. Uh, so, you know, it makes sense that that would happen. Personally, I'm really glad that, that nothing ever uh, happened, that you just had good friendships with, with these professors or in teachers. The last one seems like it might have been dipping into some... In, um some kind of dating relationship uh which of course is not necessarily inappropriate um depending on the policy of the school um it might not be a good idea but it's not against the law for an adult uh, student to date an adult professor uh it's not usually advised um as a professor myself um, i w- you know have never done that i would never do that i would always advise against it but it's it's not strictly against the law and we don't want to be sex negative we you know as long as it's in the past there are ethical concerns that play into that that um, we have to consider for example if the student is ever going to be in that professor's class then uh starting a relationship is not a good idea or that student should not take that professor's class you know for obvious reasons but anyway, you ask some other questions here initially. You say, you know, why do I continue ending up in situations like these with my male professors? So, you know, you identified that, you know, you were traumatized by men of your age and you avoid them. Um, but it, it also seems like a strong possibility that even though it didn't resonate with you, um, the other example or the other conceptualization I gave, which is that, you know, you talk about how, with your parents, your mom was the rule setter and your dad was the fun parent and you and your mom would be very defensive and argumentative. And then you would go to your dad and your dad would, um, affirm you, meaning that your dad, uh, basically would support you and your arguments against your mom. And that creates a dynamic that, um, isn't necessarily fantastic. Um, obviously, it'd be nice if you weren't fighting with your mom, that, that's, that, you know, can be very hurtful. Uh, but, um, the fact that your dad was kind of siding with you against your mom, then that confuses things and makes it so that, um, you kind of like to pull older men into your life in a way that isn't, um, doesn't have good boundaries if that makes any sense, so you might have a familiarity with older men with bad boundaries the way your dad was now your dad didn't have a sexual relationship with you, but your dad given the little bit you talked about it's possible that your dad had what we might call bad boundaries with you, meaning that he There's nothing wrong with him supporting you if you were having fights with your mom. But it's a different thing to affirm your position with your mom. You know, that doesn't, that's triangulation. It doesn't necessarily help the situation. It doesn't, certainly doesn't help to resolve the conflict. Um, So it's possible that you have a template based on years and years in your family of origin, that the way to connect with men is they ha- they're older and they have bad boundaries. And that's sort of like a, um, to put it even in another word, it's, it's possible that when you were having fights with your mom, you felt very alone and you felt very hurt and you really needed a lot of, um, affirmation that you were a good enough person. And so you would go to your dad and you would kind of suck him in to lowering his guard and, and affirming you and being on your side, you would, you know, you'd sort of elicit that from him as a way of trying to feel secure in your relationship. So it's just totally natural to do, especially when you're going through all that difficulty with your mom. And that created this template of what love is supposed to be like with you, in that um, love is pushing an older man into a position where he's doing something he's probably not supposed to do. I have no way of knowing if that's true for you. Uh, There's no information uh, that that points in that direction, but I have treated people who have talked about what you're talking about and that, and that was sometimes the issue. Um, So I wouldn't, um, even if that doesn't necessarily resonate. So I would just think about that in terms of (laughs) your own self-awareness. You also ask, am I perceiving these situations in a way that makes me feel closer to them than I actually am? Yeah, it's possible. It's possible that these teachers, um, you know, had closer, you know, similar relationships with a lot of students and that because of your need for closeness, you, or just, you know, being a kid uh, when you were in middle school, you just thought like, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm special. I, uh, my, this teacher ha- doesn't have any relationships like that with other kids. Um, you know, hard to know based on what you're saying, but yeah, it's, it's possible, but there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being a kid and being like, you know, maybe I'm special, you know, in this way. Um, you also ask, why would I latch on to male professors and not female professors? Well, it's, it's, it sounds like you're a heterosexual woman and it sounds like sexual attraction, or at least a, uh, you know, for a middle school girl to have, uh, a sort of um, attraction, so to speak, not it's, you know, it's a middle school girls don't necessarily have adult like physical attractions, but you know, a, a pseudo romantic kind of thing with a male instructor a teacher, you know, it's not uncommon for that to happen. Um, and uh, it's, it's call it like a, a practicing ground for later romance. Um, you know, it sounds like you know, there's some energy there for you, some sort of crush, uh, rom, you know, pseudo-minor uh, romantic energy, and that's that's why you latch on to male professors and not females. Um, it's hard for me to know, of course. You also ask, what is a clear boundary to maintain for student-teacher relationships, especially when you have lots of one-on-one interactions with them? Well, I can talk about this directly as a professor myself who has mostly female students who, from you know, when I do know them well enough, you know, uh, vast majority of them are heterosexual. Um, yeah, it, it's it's something that I think about. Uh, I have a lot of one-on-one uh, discussions with female students, and it, it will be in cl- you know behind closed doors. As a professor, I just have a gauge for where that line is. You know, obviously, when I'm talking with them about academic things, then it feels very within the, you know, normal professional relationship. But sometimes it gets a little friendly. And, you know, we might just gab about life or something. But I, as a professor, never fully become like a friend to the students. Um, It's, it's not because I'm paranoid of anything. It's just that, you know what? I have friends in my life. (laughs) I have my wife to talk to. I have other people. And I just feel like, why would I want to create that kind of relationship with a student when it could end up being a bad thing for both of us? Um, I have enough appropriate places to have relationships like that. Um, if If I did become a friend with a student, It wouldn't stress me out. I have become friends with students in the past. Um, Years ago, about 10, 15 years ago, um, there was a student whom uh, her and I became pretty good friends. She she lived next uh, door to me, actually, and we would take care of each other's cats while we were out of town. Um, And we were just very similar people. We both loved Twin Peaks, uh, like obsessively... um, uh, but you know, we never dated or there was no romantic anything like that. It was just it was you know, we were just similar people and uh, so it's not like I, I wouldn't do that, but uh, but that's out of like thousands of students, you know what I mean? And that was a, kind of a rare circumstance. And it was kind of the time in my life when I was maybe a little bit more open to do that. Um, I have a hard time believing that would happen today. Uh, it, so you know, there's a lot of ways to think about it. When you're in college, everyone's an adult, so there's uh, usually so there's uh, a lot of flexibility there, and maybe some professors. And I know some professors who actually do become friends with their students often, um, and, and do uh, potentially even date uh, former students. Um, there are policies at my university about that. I actually don't remember the specifics about it, but there are there are rules about that. Um, So there's a lot of options there. Um, So you ask, you know, what's a clear boundary to maintain? Well, you know, obviously if you're a high school student and a middle school student, uh, there are some pretty clear legal and moral boundaries that need to be upheld that are pretty obvious. But, you know, being friendly, you know, uh, we tend to, like you talk about how the fact that your middle school teacher was someone whom you could kind of, rely on, that you had, you know, more contact with than other teachers, you you felt good about your relationship. That's a wonderful thing. And in our society today, when we're all paranoid about being accused of sexual abuse or sexual harassment, I'm really glad you had those experiences because uh, most men, the vast majority of men and male teachers are not capable of crossing those boundaries with their uh, with their students they not only uh, do they not want to do that but they couldn't do it if you put a gun to their head like for me um, I couldn't if I was a high school teacher a middle school teacher um, y- you'd have to kill me before I did something like that to a kid there's just nothing in my body that wants to do that there's just, it's disgusting it's horrible it's uh, there's no impulse there. It's not like I don't have to hold anything back. It's just, it's just not there. And so, you know, for a, uh, tween girl to have a connection with a teacher, regardless of gender, you know, that's a great thing. And I, and I'm glad you had that. I'm sort of rambling at this point. It's late at night. Um, what's the next question? What should I do about the former professor who was currently messaging me? Well, I don't know. That's up to you, of course, you know it's it's your it's your relationships. Uh, but it certainly sounds like a healthy choice to cut off contact because certainly it was showing all the signs of it heading in a direction uh, where, You'd have to make some more difficult choices. Now, maybe you want to get involved with your ex-professor. Um, again, that's up to you. You're both adults, um, from what I understand. and uh, uh, But it doesn't sound like you want to be involved with that person. So, you know, it sounds like a good choice to just be like, okay, I'm not going to respond. Um, then you ask me, you know, do I tell my significant other? Again, that is up to you. Uh uh, there's certainly wisdom in telling your significant other just be like hey you know i just wanted to tell you about this nothing ever happened i, I never wanted anything to happen but you know i have to say there was a time when i kind of had a little crush on him but i, I i'm not going to be with that person and i love you very much and it's all in the past and i just felt like i wanted to tell you because i felt bad that i was keeping a secret from you you could certainly say that um you could also not say anything about it. You know, it kind of depends on what you think your significant other would care about. Um, you know, there's different styles of relationships. Some people like to be very open about this. Some people sort of have a don't ask, don't tell about that. You know, it, it depends. Um, there's just a lot of different options there. Um, but overall, what I'll say is, is that, you know, you, you, you've noticed a relationship pattern in your life. And although nothing bad has happened from it, I just wanna say that, you know, all three of those relationships with older male and you know, teachers, professors were all positive in your life and nothing bad came from it. I just wanna point that out. We we do we really do not wanna pathologize having a close relationship with uh, your teachers and with your professor, that's that's a great thing. You know, teachers, professors, they get into the job because they want to help people, and they want to have contact with those students. They want to make a difference in their life, and those teachers made a difference in your life, and you told them they made a difference, and they probably recognized that, and that really helped them. That gave meaning to their life that you were positively affected by their career choice. So, you know, I really want to not pathologize that because, you know, it's very tempting to look at this as some kind of gross, illegal, sexual, you know, thing. And there's nothing about that. Now, the last relationship looked like it was kind of heading in that direction. But again, you're adults. And if he likes you back romantically... Then uh, you know, uh, under a lot of circumstances, there's there's nothing unethical about that, because um, it doesn't sound like he's current. You know, he's going to be your professor in the future. So, uh, so I just don't want to pathologize any of this. But what I will say is that what you're looking at is a pattern, and uh, getting to know that pattern might be good because it kind of sounds like you're on the young side. Like you might be in your younger twenties or something, and this might play out, um, again, and it might bite you in the ass in a certain way. Now, maybe you cultivate it. Maybe if this current relationship doesn't work out, maybe you want to try dating an older person, see how it goes. I don't know. I'm not telling you to do that, but you know, it, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but getting to know like what this is, you know, that dynamic between your mom and your dad, I'm thinking had more of a formative, function in your romantic life than maybe you're realizing at this point. It's not a pathology, it's just interesting. And um, getting to know that might, might help uh, you in terms of your decision making, in terms of understanding your impulses, and also getting your needs met. You know, like a possible scenario, once you really figure this all out, might be like, okay, um, you know, Rachel from Louisiana, I am going to uh, have a, a safe partner my age whom I have a romantic relationship and a sexual relationship with. But I also always need that older mentor who I have a lot of conversations with. And we, um, you know, have a deeper relationship than what is typical to the teacher, student, or mentor-mentee relationship. Um And, you know, maybe there's some slight crush there that I have on him, but, you know, it's innocent and it never goes anywhere. You know, maybe for you, that's sort of the optimal way to live. Like you you need both of those kinds of relationships and there's nothing wrong with that. If you understand yourself and you understand your impulses, then again, you're better able to get your needs met. There's also a possibility that... You have some unfinished business with your parents and maybe even with your dad. That once you resolve, then this impulse, um, if it is potentially self destructive, will go away. There's just a lot of options, is what I'm saying. And I'm not, it's, it's impossible for me to tell. Um, Obviously, going to a therapist and really kind of exploring this, getting to know it um, in a non judgmental space over time would definitely help you to get to the bottom of it. And I wish you luck on that. All right. Well, that does it for that episode in which I answered emails. It is now one in the morning because I'm a night owl and I'm surprised my brain is still working. So it's time for bed. And please take care of yourself uh, because you deserve it. Also, you know, what do you think about this stuff? I said, I think I got in some, you know, some pretty interesting areas today's episode. Uh, email me, go to website contact, uh, go to uh, psychology in Seattle.com and figure out and fill my, my brain is not working. Fill out the contact us page. That's the way I like to be emailed because it asks all the appropriate question. Rachel actually filled out that uh, form as well. Um, also, if you're on YouTube right now, please subscribe, hit the bell so you get notified whenever we post anything and comment, you know, below, what do you think or participate in the commentary of this episode? I got to a lot of things, parenting, you know, uh, mentor slash crushes, um, you know, you know, pulling the plug and the trauma of that. I mean, I got into a lot of things. Um, were you there when... Uh, you had to pull the plug for someone that you loved or an animal that you cared about, you know, what was that like for you? All right. And please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. You really do. I hope you know that you deserve care. You deserve to take care of yourself. You deserve other people to take care of you. You deserve to take care of other people because that's just fair. All right. Bye. (laughs) Bye.